Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, the weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called Gratitude and Lament, Remembering the Reformation After 500 Years. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October 15, 2017. For the month of October, Journey with Jesus is Remembering the Reformation, 500 Years with guest essays from five traditions, Catholic, Reformed, Anglican, Lutheran, and Orthodox. This week's essay, Gratitude and Lament, is by Matthew Lundberg, who earned his Ph.D. at Princeton and is currently Professor of Religion at Calvin College in Michigan. Reflecting on the half-millennium since Luther initiated the Protestant Reformation, brings to mind two obvious but countervailing observations. First, the Reformation's provision of genuine spiritual and theological renewal. And then secondly, its unleashing of waves of church division. At the heart of both is the question of the church's unity, Catholicity, and apostolicity. These three of the so-called marks or attributes of the church that we read in the Nicene Creed Pondering these issues today, from my reform vantage point, requires that we bring a historical perspective on the past into conversation with an ecumenical outlook in the present. John Calvin, who lived from 1509 to 1564, has rightly become the figurehead of the reform traditions, though his long shadow can easily obscure key contributions made by others. Partly due to the role of his adopted city, Geneva, as a safe haven for Protestants whose lives were in danger, Calvin's influence loomed large and continues today. Even a cursory journey through John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion shows his conviction that the Reforming Church was the true church, while the Catholic Church was but a false church. He writes, the worship of God has been deformed by a diverse and unbearable mass of superstitions. Doctrine, apart from which Christianity cannot stand, has become entirely buried and driven out. Calvin draws the conclusion that opting not to belong to the Roman Catholic Church was no great loss, as it was only to opt against a false church. Again, he writes, in withdrawing from deadly participation in so many misdeeds, there is accordingly no danger that we be snatched away from the Church of Christ. From the Catholic perspective of that day, of course, Calvin, like Luther, was a schismatic. In Calvin's own mind, however, it was the Catholics who had departed from the true Church and from genuine Catholicity and apostolicity of doctrine. Given this argument, Calvin naturally retains numerous notes of small c Catholicity. Following the Apostles' Creed, he speaks of the Catholic Church, small c, as an article of faith, tying it not to an institutional hierarchy in Rome, but to the seamless garment that is Christ. He accordingly emphasizes not the novelty of the Protestant Church, but its connection with the foundational resources of Christianity. This manifests itself most prominently in his appeal to the 
apostolic teaching as made known by Scripture. It is also seen in the many insights he draws from patristic theologians such as Chrysostom and especially Augustine. In Calvin's own mind, the church and theology that he espoused were not an innovation, but mainly a return to the evangelical church of the apostles in a Nicene and Augustinian key. It is Augustinian in that Calvin, like Luther, wanted to reaffirm the primacy of grace that he thought had withered away in the Catholic Church of the preceding centuries. It is Nicene in that Calvin was happy to affirm the creeds and doctrines of the early Church, provided the caveat that human traditions, even of the great councils and creeds, are fallible and always subordinate to the authority of Scripture. The churches that Calvin did so much to sculpt are thus, in many respects, just a renewed version of Nicene and Augustinian Christianity. From these foundations, though, something distinctive emerged. The Reformed tradition became an identifiable strand of the Christian story as it took shape in Zurich, Strasbourg, and especially Geneva. It was given key expression in an array of notable confessions and catechisms and migrated from Europe to the rest of the world, where it now takes innumerable cultural forms, including, for example, newer confessional statements speaking today's challenges, like the Belhar Confession from the South African, South African Reformed Churches. It involves living out the Christian faith with a compelling emphasis on the primacy of Scripture, the sovereignty of the triune God, the centrality of Christ, the ineradicable goodness of creation, the pervasiveness of sin, the utter necessity of grace for salvation and liberation, and the call upon the church to participate in God's renewal of all creation. To be sure, these theological convictions are not the sole possession of the Reformed tradition. It's more the way that they are linked to one another and the way they are that they are articulated that lends this tradition its distinctiveness. It is, in other words, a uniqueness within Catholicity. Moreover, the Reformed tradition, even in its early years, has usually kept its participation in the broader church in view. For example, the Belgic Confession of 1561 was written in part to defend the genuine Catholicity of the Dutch Reformed Church against its Catholic critics and persecutors. The Confession did not shy away from the Reformed affirmations, nor criticisms of Roman Catholicism, or Anabaptism for that matter, but neither was it trying to define an entirely different Church. Rather, it attempted to demonstrate that Reformed believers were really Christian, which would only work if it presupposed significant agreement with its persecutors. Like any label, reformed is often used not just as a descriptor, but as a badge of honor. It functions not infrequently as a way of saying the truest church. It's perhaps no accident, then, that the reformed churches have had a penchant for splintering and subdividing over theological disagreements. On the one hand, any Protestant or anyone who admires, say, the confessing church in Germany in the 1930s 
can't rule out the possibility of division sometimes being the appropriate response to fundamental disagreement. On the other hand, thinking that my expression of Christianity is the truest manifestation of authentic faith <coughs> can lead prematurely to the conclusion that those who disagree with us in whatever way we have diverged from the true faith, as such, we must separate from them in order to remain in the true church. It's here that we may say, see a loose analogy with the idolatry on display in the golden calf story in Exodus 32 for this week. What's striking is the ease with which the people of faith substitute something of their own making for the true object of faith. Psalm 106 for this re week reflects upon the Exodus 32 passage using language of exchange that is later picked up by Romans chapter 1. Perhaps one Christian form of this sin is when we exchange the riches of Christ and his body for the trappings of a particular traditional or denominational identity. Here it's worth heeding the warning of the Swiss Reformed theologian Karl Barth, who died in 1968. He writes, once the church has decided that apart from being a Christian, an evangelical church, it must also be Lutheran or Calvinist, then we have to reckon with the possibility that the inevitable will happen. That when we give natural theology an inch, it will want a yard. It will want everything. And so the church will become more and more Lutheran or Calvinist and proportionately less and less Christian and evangelical. The deepest motivation behind Bart's warning is his conviction that Scripture presents a constant challenge to us to reform our lives and beliefs. Perhaps an ecumenical mindset can help us to do this. Paying attention to what Christians from other traditions find in the biblical text can help us to see things that we may have missed, just as we can help them to see things more clearly. However, even as Bart insisted on Christian being our proper aim and identity, he also affirmed that being part of a particular confession or tradition means being persuaded of the basic truth of its interpretation of the gospel, and therefore includes a willingness to challenge other interpretations. Bart boldly, although never uncritically, owned his own Reformed theological perspective and he certainly believed that it had gifts to offer to the ecumenical church, but those gifts were offered not so much as Reformed, but as specifically Christian gifts. In short, being Reformed 500 years after the Protestant Reformation is best pursued with a consciously ecumenical horizon. That is, an awareness that the triune God is at work in the world and in other churches. It's fitting, then, that the World Communion of Reformed Churches recently signed on to the document called Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification that the Roman Catholic Church in the Lutheran World Federation hammered out in 1999. The Catholic part in the agreement constitutes an admission 
that there were some good reasons for attempts at reform in the 16th century. And the Lutheran role suggests that the Reformation's portrayal of the Roman Church as little more than an apostate fault church was and is not fully accurate. As many of the world's Reformed and Presbyterian churches joined their pens via the World, Christian, the world Communion of Reformed Churches to the Joint Declaration, we see that at least some of the heirs of Calvin today would temper the critiques of their forebears on where the one Catholic and apostolic church is actually to be found. So, considering the legacy of the Reformation after 500 years leads me to both gratitude and lament. Lament because it inaugurated an unprecedented surge of schisms in the body of Christ that still prevents me from sharing the Lord's table with those I know are my sisters and brothers in faith. And gratitude because the Reformation brought much-needed evangelical renewal to European Christianity, and in so doing, formed the churches that continue to nurture me as a disciple of Christ. Gratitude and lament. Remembering the Reformation after 500 years from a Reformed perspective, that's Matthew Lundberg, a professor of religion at Calvin College. For books this week, I review a novel by an African author. His name is Odafi Atogun. The title Taduno's Song, a novel, New York Pantheon, 2016, 234 pages. This Nigerian novel, which reads more like a fable, opens with a famous music musician named Taduno, who's in exile because his revolutionary music angered his country's dictator. He receives a letter from his girlfriend, Layla, that begs him not to return. Although he was thrilled to hear from Layla, the letter was a portent of disaster. Taduno did return to Nigeria anyway. Upon return, he came to realize that nobody even recognized him. He had somehow lost his identity. He had also lost his famous voice and Layla had been abducted by the dictator government. Worst of all, he was eventually faced with a Faustian dilemma. Either make a hit record in praise of the corrupt regime, sell his soul, and betray the masses for whom he was a hero, but in so doing gain the release of Layla, or refuse the government demand on political principle, and so guarantee the death of his beloved. The stakes are raised with bribery, flattery, prison, torture, and temptation. The author, Adogun, explores any number of themes here, like the fight for one's conscience, the brutality of thugocracies, the power of art to transform people and to threaten political power, the delicate interplay between wisdom and bravery, and the conflict between political activism 
in romantic love. Will Taduno become a hero or a traitor? Will he support the regime to save his life or resist and stay true to love for Layla and his country? What sort of song will he sing and why? We only learn on the last few pages. This novel, Taduno's Song, is Adogun's debut novel. According to his own website, his second novel, Wake Me When I'm Gone, is scheduled for release in September 2017, which, of course, was last month. Once again, Odafi Atogun, the title of the novel, Taduno's Song. For movies, we go to the country of Japan in a title called Our Little Sister. The premise of this quiet movie is quite simple. Three sisters, Sachi, Yoshino, and Chika, live alone in their grandmother's house after their father deserted them for another woman and their mother left to live with another man. When they travel to another town to attend the funeral of their estranged father, they end up inviting their 13-year-old half-sister, Suzu, whom they have hadn't even known about, to return and live with them. And thus begins the slow-moving drama of daily life among four women. Family history. A new school and soccer team for Suzu. Gossip and giggles about boys. Making homemade plum wine from their garden. Collecting shells at the beach. And, in almost every scene, food. In a different context, the Latina theologian Ada Maria Isazi Diaz described this intersection of the sacred and the mundane, the unexpected and the unexceptional, as lo cotidiano, the daily thing, or what I like to think of, the sacred ordinary. This Japanese film, Our Little Sister, won Picture of the Year from the Japan Academy and was an official selection for the Cannes Film Festival. This movie is in Japanese with English subtitles. Finally, more poetry from Scott Cairns, another of his Idiot Psalms. This is called Idiot Psalm 12. O being both far distant and most near, O lover embracing all unlovable, O tender tether binding us together, in binding, yea and tenderly, your person to ourselves, being both beyond our kin and kindred, one whose dire energies invest such clay as ours with patent animation. O secret one secreting life anew into our every tissue moribund, afresh unto our stale installing craft, grant in this obscurity a little light. 
A Scott Cairns, Idiot Song 12. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October 15th, 2017. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.